Hi, my name is Jamie Duvall, the host of Movie Geeks United. Welcome to our new series, August 69. To keep track of each episode, visit us at moviegeeksunited.net and click on the Tinseltown Tragedies link at the top of the page. August 8, 1969 was the last full day of life for Sharon Tate, her unborn baby, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, Wojtek Frykowski, and Stephen Parent. It was also the 18th birthday of Dennis Hurst, the last outside visitor to the Cielo Drive home of Tate prior to the arrival of Parent or the Killers. Hurst was working with his father, the owner of the Hans Ort Lightweight Bicycle Shop in Beverly Hills. Just days earlier, Abigail Folger had arrived at the shop to purchase a bicycle. The first delivery was made to Miss Folger on Wednesday the 6th at the Cielo Drive residence, but it was the wrong color. Mr. Hurst corrected this mistake by delivering the correct colored bike two nights later on the 8th. In the process, he encountered Jay Sebring, just hours before his murder. Mr. Hurst would later serve as one of the first witnesses in the circus-like Tate-LaBianca murder trial. For the first time in 50 years, Mr. Hurst discusses all of this and so much more, including the atmosphere in Los Angeles, both before and after that summer savagery, his own near miss with the killers that night, and his relationship with a young woman who might be one of the Manson family's unclaimed victims. My great uncle, Hans Ort, won the national championship bicycles cycling championship in 1915, racing for the Olympic Club, which is a prominent club in San Francisco, <clears throat> as an amateur. And then um, he and his brother, my grandfather, went on to become professional racers in Australia and Europe and New York. They raced in Madison Square Gardens. I think it was actually Madison Square Gardens was built as a bicycle velodrome venue originally. But, um, and so when they returned from Europe in the mid twenties, one of them opened up a bike shop across the street from Golden Gate Park in San Francisco and his brother, Hans Ort, said, oh, I'm gonna open my shop in uh, this new town they're building near Los Angeles called Beverly Hills. So I think around 1927, he opened up a shop in Beverly Hills on Brighton Way or whatever, and then moved it to Camden and Little Santa Monica in, I think, 1932. So that's Rodeo Drive in the next block, parallel to Rodeo to the west, is Camden. So the southeast corner of Camden and Little Santa Monica, if you're kind of familiar with Beverly Hills. After the, and my parents met as bicycle riders, club riders, and, you know, 100-mile racers. My mother, because she was the daughter of a prominent cyclist and bicycle shop owner in San Francisco, and my dad, just because he he became a, a avid cyclist. <clears throat> and after the war, where my dad served as um, you know a pilot flying the hump uh, during World War II, uh, and he was very mechanical. And so uh, my my mother's uncle invited my parents to come down. And hey, you're a young family. You're very mechanical. You're very much in cycling. We we have like a the, the the premier bicycle store. They sold the finest European lightweight bicycles, even when most Americans were buying you know heavy Schwins and and um, so they catered to that upscale bicycle crowd. Beautiful store, um, 
the whole earth catalog rated it one of the three best bike shops in the country back when they had the catalog out in the 60s or about this time so sort of like rich hippies like uh peter fonda came in and had a bicycle custom built up for him and that's how my mm-hmm. brother ended up in the male lead in a peter fonda movie because they got to know each other when they were having the bike built so my parents came down to to manage the store and and hans Ort and his wife ida were childless and so they said yeah and then we want to retire. You guys can run the store. And when, when I die, we'll leave the store to you because we don't have any children. And that's ultimately what, what happened. And uh, so I grew up in a family that were avid cyclists and aficionados of fine bicycle equipment. And my first job, you know, was polishing fenders and <clears throat> sweeping the floors at the shop. I'll tell you a funny story. One day I was working in the bike shop. And in, uh, and he was he was a really good customer, and so really good customers could come in through the shop entrance, or they could come in the front door, which is angled 45 degrees right at the corner of Camden, Little Santa Monica. And uh, uh, he came in. It was Buddy Hackett, and he said, "Mr. Hurst, Mr. Hurst," he said, "I want to buy a really nice tricycle because uh, my good friend, very late in life, probably too late in life, he just had his first baby." And I want to I, I want to give the baby a gift. So what's like? Do you have like a really nice tricycle? My dad said yes. We actually have this fine line of German imported tricycles with real ball bearings that are really beautiful, well made, pretty expensive. It was like a hundred dollars, which would be like I don't know five hundred dollars for a tricycle today. And uh, so we bought one, and it was a bright red tricycle. And <clears throat> my dad said it's a boy or a girl, and he I think he said it's a girl. So we put a big red bow on it, and. Uh, and so Buddy Hackett walks out, walks out of the store with his tricycle on his arm. And I'm working at the bike shop, I don't know, two or three weeks later, and uh, in the front door of the bike shop with this tricycle tucked under his arm with a, with a bow on it is Don Rickles. And he goes, hey, Mr. Hurst, Mr. Hurst, my friend, he's an idiot. He buys me this tricycle. My kid can't ride it for like three or four years, so what am I going to do with this thing? My dad says, well, I said, you know, Mr. Hackett paid all cash. So, I mean, I can credit your account. I, I, can, I can credit your credit card or I give you cash out of the drawer. But happy to take the bicycle back and hopefully you'll be back to repurchase it when she's ready to ride. Well, right about that time is my dad's taking the tricycle and giving, uh, giving Mr. Rickles uh, some money. By absolute total coincidence, walking in through the back shop entrance comes Buddy Hackett. He goes, oh, you fucking Jew. What are you doing? You're returning this deal. And they, they started this insulting kibitz that you would pay for, for uh, that show in Vegas. I laughed so hard. I, I, would, I had to sit down on the stair. We had stairs that went up, upstairs. And, I had, and every, everybody in the shop was just going absolutely crazy. And they were... <laughs> So good at at cutting at each other, but you could tell that they truly loved each other, and it was absolutely precious. There were a lot of moments like that 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 I remember. I've been delivering a bicycle to Anthony Quinn and trying to teach his dog the beautiful home in Bel Air, overlooking the the canyon there, and and um, um, wow. so I delivered a lot of bicycles to movie stars' homes. A lot of stars were regular customers. Jimmy Durante would always come in and. Nice thing about Jimmy Durante is he, 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 always, he lived in a relatively modest house, actually on Rodeo Drive, just north of Santa Monica. Very sweet man. 
And, um, and he always paid everything in $100 bills. So we always hoped that like, you know, if it was $195, so that was, that was nice. He's could you whip off two $100 bills. I keep the change, Mr. Hurst. Um, but if it was like, you know, $108, well, that was really good because he got $200 bills. Uh, and, and there were wonderful people that came in the shop, as you can imagine. There were some adventurers. There was, you know, uh, James Garner and um, uh, who the, the, the bike race, the, the car racing guys, Paul Newman. And, um, oh, shoot, what's, why, am I, why am I drawing a blank on his name? From the Magnificent Seven, um, um, The Steve Great Escape. Um, Steve McQueen and whatever. Uh, David McCallum, you know, the young guy from uh, I Spy. They, they they started off racing Mini Coopers because they were cheap and they just had one liter engine and stuff. And of course, they all advanced to, and Stephen Queen was good on a motorcycle. Anyway, so one some wonderful people. And then some, I'm going to call assholes that would come in, like Charles Bronson. And he would just come in. He was like a bull in the china shop. And he would like, wah, 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 and, you know, whatever. And then he had this, like, mousy little assistant that would follow around behind him. He says, oh, yeah, and Mr. Hurst, uh, like, uh, Mr. Bronson would really like to thank you for your outstanding service. You know, whatever. And you kind of unruffle everybody's feathers and pay everybody. And you had, Robin Leach, who, wow. who, who never never paid his bills um, and had to be taken to small things <laughs> court. So, so wow. I'm, I'm trying oh, to paint a picture of, of, uh, of uh, a young boy who grew up uh, in Beverly Hills. But, and uh, I'm going to say a modest family. Uh, and actually up Benedict, we grew up in Benedict Canyon, which is, uh, and I lived on a deserted cul-de-sac because there had been some land slippage problems so the three houses next to us were were not occupied so i lived on a, on a more or less deserted cul-de-sac up in a canyon not too far from the murder scene I, I used the expression and fear swept the pool sides and that was that 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 sense of tension and drama especially after the second murders of the la biancas and nobody had any idea who had done this and this was this very upscale secure safe, not too much happened, certainly not inside the city limits of Beverly Hills. And then here were all these wealthy people that suddenly felt insecure. So that expression in mm-hmm. fear swept the pool sides was, was um, and, and, and we, were all aw- we were all aware of it. So, so I grew up in <clears throat> the bicycle shop was cent- central to my, to my family. And it was my, my job until I, probably until I start almost the summer before college, the summer in question. And, um, and so you had to have been, what, 1920, 69? Well, August 8th of 1969 was my 18th birthday that night. Really? That day. Wow. Yeah, so I, I, I went to the beach that day. We used to go to Sorrento Beach, which is right near the Jonathan Club there in Santa Monica. That's where me and all my friends would hang out. And I had a girlfriend. She actually lived on Rockingham in Brentwood, ironically, and uh, beautiful home, beautiful home, beautiful family. And uh, so it's my birthday, so I'm going to take her out to a movie for my birthday. And I think it was, um, so, I, I, so I hitchhiked or whatever back to the bike shop <clears throat> from the beach, which I often did, came into the shop, I don't know, it was like maybe 5.30 or something, and I said, hey, Dad, can I have the van tonight for take Janice out to a movie for my birthday? And he said, yeah, but uh, and I can ride my bicycle home. It's about five miles up the canyon to the, to the house. And my dad often 
rode the bicycle. In fact, he looked for an opportunity to ride the bike, so he was happy to give me the van. But he said, you have to make a delivery. And I made lots of deliveries. And, um, but you can't deliver it now on the way up the canyon because they're going to be out to dinner. And they're, they're, so you have to deliver it after 7.30. Yeah, he said, yeah, on Wednesday, uh, somebody was in the bike shop and they bought uh, a Raleigh Superb or whatever it was. And uh, I delivered it that night, Wednesday night. Uh, then they called this morning and said, no, we don't want the green one. We want the blue one. So I need you to drive up there and uh, drop off the blue bike and pick up the green bike. Now, it's a little bit tricky because it, it, the address is Cielo, but it's actually off of Angelo. And so what you have to do is, you know, go up and then just turn up, and it looks like a long driveway. There's a few homes on it. And then when you get to the gate, just feel around in that bush. There's a button. Just push that button, and the gate will open. And I said, okay. So I went home, showered, changed. And I don't know, around 7.30, maybe it was 7.15, maybe it was 7.45, so something, somewhere around there. And my brother Michael had also been to that house when Rudy Altabelli lived there two years earlier. Uh, he's the one who rented the house to Terry Melcher. And he was getting ready to travel around the world for a year or two. And he had a – my brother Michael was known for Mr. Exotic Animal. We had every kind of animal you could imagine at our home growing up. Ocelot, fox, bobcat, pelicans, 100 – he had 150 different types of animals. Uh, including some river otters that we've caught in the neighborhood. Turns out they'd escaped from De uh, Dennis Wilson's home. We oh. ultimately returned them when we found out about six months later. <clears throat> and anyway, so somehow Rudy heard about Michael, and he said, I'll give you my kinkajou if you give him a good home. And so Michael got the directions, went to the place. He knew how to work the, the button and everything else, and Rudy Altabelli gave him the kinkajou, and then he was hitting on my brother, and my brother said, no, no, no I, don't, I don't play for the other team or whatever, but thanks for the kinkajou. And so there was, a, you know, and I think maybe my brother said, oh, yeah, I know that place, or maybe he told me the story later or whatever. Oh, yeah, I know that place because that's where I got the kinkajou. And um, so anyway, uh, so my dad gave me the direction. I went home, showered, changed in, in, in the early evening. It was August. So it was still daylight. Uh, I made the delivery. And I remember distinctly driving in and when I delivered a lot of these estates in, in Beverly Hills, Bel Air, whatever, there would be a, 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 some kind of a pressure plate or like at the gas station, that little black cord that went across, you drive across it, it would close the gate behind you. So I, I looked carefully around to, to find, to make sure I drove over it to close the gate, um, but there was nothing there on the driveway. And I just noticed in my mirror that a minute later the gate just closed, so it was a, a cheaper addition. And uh, so I went to the garage. The garage door was open. I picked up the green bike, delivered the blue bike, and um, and then I went around, if you're familiar with the property, I went around to the little front gate by the little wishing well, and then the flagstone stairs to the, to the porch, the front door, rang the doorbell, and a gentleman answered the door. I found out later it was Jay Sebring. And he had a bottle in his hand, like a green glass bottle, like a... Spinata or, I don't know, some kind of a inexpensive wine-type small bottle drink. And I said, yeah, I, I'm from the bike shop. I, I just want to let you know I brought, picked up the bike, dropped off the bike. It's in the garage, whatever the instruction cards are on it and everything else. And he said, okay, thank you, whatever. I mean, we barely exchanged 
uh, 25 or 50 words. And, uh, and then I left. And I just remembered, my girlfriend and I were always looking for a discreet place to go, like do some necking. We didn't, we didn't have sex, but we did about everything else, and we were always looking for a discreet place to do it. And I remember thinking, ah, you know, on the way back from the movie theater, that's pretty secluded. Maybe I'll just drive up there and park right up there at that, that area big enough to turn around in just outside the gate. That'd be a really, other than maybe somebody coming and going from that one house, it would be never anybody drive by there. It'd be a great place to park. God, I remember that. That kind of haunts me. So I picked her up in Rockingham, and we went out to the Cinerama Dome and watched, I think it was uh, Paint Your Wagon with Clint Eastwood and Ray Walston, who lived across the street from us. And so on the way back from Hollywood, I, I like to take Sunset Boulevard. And I remember just as we were passing the Beverly Hills Hotel, I thought, yeah, maybe I'll turn I think I turned my blinker on, and I was getting ready to turn right and go up to the canyon and take <clears throat> Janice to go do some private necking. But I also remember that, and they lived in this beautiful mansion on Rockingham, and they had a a family room or a den, and we used to be able to make out on the couch, and we did everything. We did, you know, I'd get a top off or bra off or petting or whatever, whatever <clears throat> kissing, and and uh, usually around midnight, her dad would walk down the hallway outside the den with the doors closed, and he would kind of <clears throat> uh, clear his throat like he was going into the kitchen to get a snack. And then if I didn't get the hint, by about 12.30, there'd be another <clears throat> outside the door or whatever, and then we'd, we'd <laughs> sort of butt button things up, straighten her hair a little bit. and Oh, hello, Mr. Perry. Yeah, it's time I left. Okay, bye. I'll see you tomorrow. And so that that little bit of maybe trust he had in his daughter and that, that bit of license that he gave us probably saved both of our lives because we would have been there at, the, at about the wrong time, about the time that the people were leaving. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, there would have been a black 1958 Chevy parked there, and it would have been a different story. Do you do you imagine that you were outside of the killers and the and the victims that you were the last kind of bystander on that property that night? Well, well, other than Bill Garrison, the caretaker who lived in the the house across the pool, mm-hmm. and he was there all evening. It's kind of mysterious how he never heard anything, or did he hear something, or did he was he confronted and then he kind of ran and hid or or whatever. So other than Garrison, who was on the property and survived the evening. Yes, I was the last person to leave there alive other than the perps. Wow. And yes, it did occur to me. It's so it's interesting to me because it's it's such a traumatic event not only for the community you grew up in, but it's known the world over. And it happened to you 50 years ago. It, it, are those images do you replay those images yeah. of knocking on that door every all the time? Not all the time, but it was interesting when, when you said, Al, and I was just wondering what caused you or whatever, and maybe this Tarantino movie coming out or whatever, and you said, oh, it's the 50th anniversary of those events. And I thought, fuck, that's right. I'm turning 68 ah, on yeah. August 8th. And it is the 50th anniversary of, um, I didn't put it in those terms, but I thought, oh my gosh, I, I mean, the math is instantaneous and subconscious. I thought, man, I'm turning 68. I, and that's not the age I put on Tinder, but that's my real age. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little different reality there. So, um, yeah, so I remember then I, I got home that night. Uh, and the next morning, I was going to go out and spend the day with Janice again. And uh, so 
Yeah, so the 8th must have been a Friday, right? So I was going out to Genesis yeah. on Saturday morning. And I had the van. My dad left the van. He rode his bike back down to work again. And, um, and so I guess I had the van that day, and I was going to pick up Janice and maybe spend some time at her house. She had a beautiful pool and a tennis court, and maybe we we're going to go to the beach or whatever. <clears throat> and, when, and then as I'm driving down the canyon, I was turning the radio on, and I heard the news. It, and, it, of course, I couldn't possibly put two, two together because the bicycle was Abigail Folger and Wojciech Krakowski had bought the bicycle, not um, Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate. And, yeah. um, and, uh, and it said Beverly Hills. Well, 10050 Sierra Drive is not, it's BHPO, but it's not actually Beverly Hills. Most people wouldn't know that, but I, I knew that. So, you know, Benin Canyon is, is only connected to L.A., at least on the south, by going through Beverly Hills. You can't get there otherwise. So um, the post office, like I grew up, we, we weren't actually in Beverly Hills, but it was Beverly Hills, California, 90210, but we were actually in the city of Los Angeles. So we paid L.A. water. We paid L.A. taxes. But um, And I technically couldn't go to Beverly Hills High School, even though I did go to Beverly Hills High School for summer school, um, just because we used the bike shop address or something. And uh, so I was aware that that wasn't Beverly Hills. So it, it didn't really, oh, my gosh, oh, terrible murders, multiple murders. But I don't know what time, it, maybe it was 10 o'clock in the morning. or I think Winnie Chapman got there about 8 o'clock in the morning, so maybe it was on the news pretty quickly, 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know. I was listening to the news on the radio. They stopped playing music. They were giving the news. But it didn't occur to me that, because it said Beverly Hills, and I, and I didn't deliver by some Beverly Hills. Uh, so anyway, so when I got to Janice's house in, in Brentwood, uh, she's waiting for me in the driveway, and she said, call your dad right away. And... Um, because, you know, we didn't have cell phones or anything then. It was all a different world. So you don't you, – you, my dad couldn't reach me until I, I got to the Perry. So he'd already called out to the Perry house and said, have Dennis call me. So when I, when I got there, uh, I went inside and called my dad. And I said, what's up? And he goes, do you remember the bicycle you delivered last evening? And I said, yes. He said, that's where the murders were. And I said, oh, it's at Beverly Hills. He said, yeah, yeah, I know. They – they never let the facts get in the way of the story. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, what do you mean? I'll call the police and tell them everything I know. And he goes, well, no, let's talk about that for a minute. And I said, Dad, that's not how you race this. We do the right thing. Is there something else that's the right thing to do here? And he goes, yeah, but I love you, and I don't, I don't want you to be in danger. And I said, well, I don't know. I might have to go to Vietnam or something. I would do the right thing, even if it's dangerous. And so Dad said, okay. So I called the, the correct police jurisdiction, the West Los Angeles Police Department, and I got to ask for the, uh, whoever was investigating the murders. I had information. And so I get a sergeant, I don't remember his name, and he said, yes. I said, you're the guy in charge? He said, yep, I'm the guy to talk to. And I said, yeah. So I delivered a bicycle about 7.30, 8 o'clock last night at that address. And he goes, okay, give me your name, give me your phone number, give me your, you know, whatever, whatever. 
And then, I don't know, a few days or a week later, me and three of my high school buddies took my dad's van. And this was a little bit of that transition from Richie Cunningham to the Fonz a little bit or the hippies. And the, the van was a red and white Chevy van, a classic you know, 1968 Chevy van. It was kind of souped up a little bit with the big wheels and chrome, chrome wheels. And my mom made us some curtains, some red, white, and blue, like American flag curtains. And we installed them around the van so we could make it like our camper. One of my buddies worked in a liquor store, so we loaded two cases of beer and our luggage and everything else. And we headed off for the, uh, you know, the pre-collegiate grand tour of California. So we drove, we left a party at midnight. We drove all night, got up to Mammoth for breakfast, and then we went off on a three-day hike in the wilderness. Then we drove up to Lake Tahoe and some family friends owned a private lake right, right next to Emerald Bay in Lake Tahoe. We stayed a few days there water skiing and helping them with some stuff they were doing at the cabin. And then we drove to Yosemite and uh, spent a couple days there. And then we drove to San Francisco and we went to the Haight-Ashbury because it's the summer of love. And so we want to go to Haight-Ashbury and see hippies and listen to music and look at people dropping LSD. Then we headed up to Mount Tam, and we camped on Mount Tam. And then we drove down the Big Sur to my buddy's house in Newport Beach, got in a sailboat and sailed around Newport for a couple of days. Um, and then I called my dad, and I said, yep, I said I'd be back on Thursday, and it's, it's Wednesday, so I'll be back tomorrow. And he goes, oh, well, call me when you have an ETA when you're going to get here because the police want to talk to you. So while I was gone for two weeks, one day, a couple of police detectives come into the bike shop and they were asked to question my father. And they said, yes, we found this receipt in a drawer at the murder scene. And apparently on Wednesday, two days before the murders, uh, they were in here buying a bicycle. So who bought the bicycle? What did they look like? Was there anybody with them? Was there anything suspicious? Is there anything you can tell us? And they, I had 101 questions for my dad, and he answered all their questions. And then he said, well, now it's kind of curious that you're asking me all these questions about the purchase of the bike on Wednesday night, and you haven't asked me any questions about delivering of the bicycle Friday evening. And they go, what? Yeah, wow. said, yeah we delivered a bicycle there about 7, 7.30, 8 o'clock on the night of the murders. And uh, nobody's gotten back to us on that. And they were like, what? So he said, yeah, my son, he's off on a camping trip with his buddies, but he'll be back in a few days or whatever. So when I got back to the bike shop that afternoon, uh, there were two guys sitting in the, the, the little customer seating area in the bike shop. They escorted me over to their, you know, a Chrysler Dodge or Plymouth or whatever car with quarter hubcaps and black sidewall tires, obviously plain clothes, clothes detective car, and they put me in the back seat, and they're in the front seat or whatever, and so they asked me, to, I said, yeah, so yeah, I talked to Jay Sebring. And they said, oh, okay, well, just for the record, uh, would you identify Jay Sebring by his picture here? And they gave me a picture, and they, you know, they lean over, the two of them facing each other, leading to the front seat to me in the back seat. And I look at the picture, and I go, mm, that's not the guy I delivered the bicycle to. And they go, oh, I'm sorry, we grabbed the wrong picture. Uh, th this is the picture of J.C. Bing. This is the guy who delivered the bicycle to. And I go, no, that's not the guy who delivered the bicycle to either. And they go, oh, 
I'm sorry, that must be the wrong picture too. Here, and they open up a, like a binder with a lot of these pictures in it, like six pictures on a page. And they go, no. Next page, no. Next page, you go, yeah, that guy right there. And they go, okay, we just want to make sure that we had the facts straight, so they were just checking me out. And they just had questions like, you know, what did you see, whatever. And so when I testified in the murder trial, uh, that was kind of interesting because here's Charles Manson sitting there with his head shaved and the swastika carved into his forehead, and, and, and I'm sitting not that far away from him you know, on the witness stand, and I was a, <clears throat> a prosecution witness. I kind of felt like uh, Huck Finn sitting in front of Injun Joe in the courtroom, you know, I was kind of a little nervous. Mm. And uh, Vince Bugliosi did the direct, and uh, the famous obstructionist defense attorney, Irving Kinnerick, did the, the cross, and then Stephen Kay, the assistant DA, did the redirect. But I remember um, that morning, I was sitting on a witness bench in the hallway, and it was uh, Colonel Tate, Sharon's father, and some other peripheral characters. Winnie Chapman, the maid, the guy, I forget his and name, the house painter. Yeah, uh, the gardener, and um, and he had painted a windowsill that had some prints on it or something like that. Uh, and Bill Garrison was sitting there. We were all sitting on the bench there. And that morning, um, we hear a little scuffle at the end of the hallway, and it's like a bailiff is like, "No, no, you can't, no, get back, whatever." And the guy's like reaching around the corner with the camera, go click, flash, and he got a a shot of us on the bench, and the bailiff pushed him back around the corner. So when I was leaving the courtroom that day, uh, I had a Volkswagen, uh, 68 Volkswagen Bug. I think they gave me a parking allowance. It was like 50 cents or a dollar or something like that. So I had to park like three blocks away. So I stopped at a, the first intersection leaving the courthouse. And there was like the, the newspaper stand on the corner. And, it, and back then we had the evening edition of the LA Times. And I put in my nickel or my dime or whatever it was. And I take out the newspaper because I want to read the news now. And there I am uh, looking at myself, front page above the fold, secret prosecution witness, Dennis Hurst or something like that. And as I'm looking at this and reading the caption, I hear this hissing sound. I kind of look around or whatever. And I look over and right across the street is like nine members of the family with the batik tie-dyed clothing and their heads shaved and swastikas carved in their foreheads and they're looking at the same newspaper picture and they're giving me the you know the the evil finger and the stink eye and pointing at me and hissing wow. at me and I had to walk over to my car and get in and during that period of time you had to I mean was was the fear uh, palpable before they they found out who did it or I would say yes in general Maybe I had a couple of episodes at night where the the dog barked or growled or something like that, which I might not even have noticed before. And you think, well, you know, you want to be careful or prudent. There was a little tension. But also it was still a secure neighborhood. It wasn't, you know, after the next night of murders or whatever it was. And you're 18 and you're invulnerable and brave or you think you're brave because something was threatening, but it it wasn't like somebody was right there in front of you. Everybody's tone changed. I bet if somebody looked at the sales records for security equipment or guns or whatever for 90210 back then, that you'd, you'd see that it was, it was real, it was palpable. I mean, we, we know 
uh, we have notorious trials now, but the Manson trial kind of set a precedent for that. Did it feel like the yes. circus atmosphere is very strange? Yes. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because remember I said, okay, so Buyoshi did the direct. I, I think I got that right. And Stephen K did the, the redirect and in between was Irving Generic. Um, and this was before Hughes, I think, was found murdered or dead out in the desert, yeah. the other defense attorney. <clears throat> and um, and so um, I'm sitting on the witness stand, and now they turn me over to uh, Irving Canaric, and he asked a bunch of questions. And I'm, I, I certainly don't remember all the testimony. I've, I've never read my transcript, and I, um, I've told the story a few times. But, but I remember he said something like, um, Oh, yeah, Buyosi said, so now did the suspect look normal to you or whatever? And I said, yeah, yeah, he looked normal. He acted normal to me or whatever, just like I told you when I, you know, he had a bottle in his hand, but, he, you know, we just had a, a brief exchange and nothing, n- nothing caused me to think anything was unusual or awry or, you know, he wasn't slurring. <clears throat> and um, so when, when Canera gets me, he goes, okay, so Mr. Hurst, like you said that he – uh, acted normal or appeared normal to you? Uh, what do you mean by normal? And if you read the transcript, you, you may have heard a question like that. It's been it's been 50 yeah. years, so I might not have it verbatim. And I said, normal, nothing out of the unusual, nothing that would cause me to think anything or whatever. He said, yeah, but when you say normal, what do you mean by normal? And I think I had some kind of a snippy remark like, well, you're the one who asked the question. What 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 do you mean by normal? Or, or something like that, something that, and then, and then he like he raised an objection, like Your Honor, and 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 um, yeah, I think the, the judge said answer the question, or it's your question, uh, you know, whatever. And um, so I was a, a little bit snippy, I think. I think I was, I don't know. I sort of enjoyed the verbal fisticuffs that that was entailed when somebody like Irving Kinnerick is trying to find anything disruptive or right. delaying or whatever about about your statements like you know well i don't know most people think normal means nothing abnormal i think i i think i recognize that and and it seemed like he was trying to find out whether that green bottle if you could define it as a as a wine bottle or just a bottle it could have it could have been a bottle for anything it wasn't seven up you know so it it you know, I would have recognized a seven up bottle, whatever. And, and, uh, yeah. So maybe he wanted to tell, well, maybe the guy was drunk. Maybe he was whatever. Maybe he was, uh, maybe there was somebody already at the house at that time, uh, standing behind him with a gun and he was tense or sweating or, you know, whatever. But the reason why they had me testify and it's pretty standard procedures. We now probably all understand a lot better from, reading books and watching television movies and stuff. When, when they were questioning me m- months before, weeks before, um, I told the story that I told you. I said, when I drove in the gate, I looked for the black cord or cable or pressure plate or something to drive over to close the gate. And I could swear beyond any doubt that there was nothing there in the driveway. And that would make sense because anybody that knows the house knows that, yep, there wasn't anything there because it was just one of those cheap gates that closed after 60 seconds. 
So hopefully you, you didn't stop in the gate and start reading your mail because the gate would have closed on you. But when uh, the police arrived the next morning after Winifred Chapman called the police or whatever from the neighbor's house, uh, the telephone cables to the house were cut and they were draped across the driveway inside the gate. And they had matched the striations on the cut telephone cables to a pair of wire cutters that they found at the Spawn Movie Ranch out in Chatsworth. And so this is what they do. They try and, you know, make the circumstantial evidence that, and then the defense attorney would say, well, maybe they cut the cables that afternoon. They they try and take the last 24 hours or so of the the perps and the victims and, and, and prove to the jury that these people couldn't have been somewhere else or couldn't have been where they were at, at a different time. And they try and paint the perps and the victims in the same place at the same time. So they knew from my testimony that those cables were not cut when I left at 8 o'clock or 8.15 or 7.45, whatever it was. And they were definitely cut when Winifred Chapman arrived at 8 o'clock the next morning. And so somebody that used that had possession of those cable cutters cut them after 8 o'clock at night and before 8 o'clock right. in the morning. Yeah, it also helped them establish a timeline as well, I, but you know. Which says yeah, and he wasn't—he wasn't bleeding at eight o'clock. He wasn't—he wasn't demented at eight o'clock. He wasn't—he was a normal human being on a Friday evening. And uh, so that's that—that that types of that, that paints a pretty tight timeline. You just set your eyes on Jay Sebring, and that was the only person on the property that you saw that night. Right. I could say that there was nobody standing next to or behind Jay Sebring when he opened the door and talked to me for a moment. Right. Um, but there could have been 10 people in the house or nobody else in the house. I, I, I couldn't tell mm-hmm. you to this day. You know, it, it, it strikes me. Uh, I mean, I was, I was reading your, your bio earlier last week, and, and uh, I mean, you're such an exceptionally accomplished person in your life, both in terms of your line of work and you're, you're, you're a, a decorated athlete and you've done all these things. But I would imagine a lot of people that – meet you or, or know you, they would probably be shocked by this fascinating footnote in your, in your past. How, how have it's, people reacted when you've, when you've revealed this to them? Yeah, Jamie, it's really, really interesting. I'm very well-known career-wise, and I'm also known, mo- most people, I get, I get it all the time. I got three times last week. Somebody said, so yeah, Dennis, you are, you are an attorney, aren't you? I mean, I know you're a commercial real estate broker, but your background is in the law, right? I'm very technical and detail-oriented, and, and, and I go toe-to-toe with attorneys and, and, and persuasive arguments and negotiations and stuff. And, and, and most of the attorneys that I work with say, oh, yeah, you're one of those brokers. Yeah, we've heard of you. One of those brokers was an attorney. Where did you go to law school? And, of course, they didn't. But, um, and then sports. Yeah, I have a, a lot of sports accomplishments. As I like to say, uh, anything that requires endurance and stupidity I've done, but I but I come from the deep end of the gene pool. Yeah, you you know the the Ironman Triathlon, the World Championships in Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. So I did that five times. I won the thirty to thirty four age groups. That tells you it was a long time ago. Um, wow. But I remember one year I did it. My wife did it. My brother did it. His wife did it. My other brother did it. His wife did it. My parents said, "Well, you get one more brother to do it. We'll come watch." You know, it's it that kind of a family. So. <laughs> So it depends on the audience. So sometimes when I'm talking to attorneys or whatever, they go, gee, Dennis, you know, I, 
you are a lawyer, or they, or they know I'm not a lawyer, but they say, wow, that was, maybe they're on the opposite side of the negotiations or we're having a deal closing dinner, or they were on my side of the negotiations. They said, you know what, we're like one of the, the, the nation's preeminent real estate law firms, and if you pass the bar tomorrow, you, you, you would practice as a partner in our firm. You're, you're that good. Yeah. <clears throat> so what's your background with the law? So I'll say, well, no, I, I never did go to law school. But uh, this was my first encounter with the law. Let me tell you a story. And you're right. They're blown away. And they're blown away out of proportion. Obviously, there have been other murders. There have been other called mass murders or whatever. But there's something about the, the Charles Manson. And, and, and there's a deep, deep fascination on the perp side and a deep fascination on the victim side. I mean, it's a coffee heiress and a and a, a Hollywood starlet and a, and a, yeah, somebody sent me a clip of Jay Sebring being on what's my line or to tell the truth or whatever. Uh, but he was along with uh, Vidal Sassoon. I guess they were the two most famous hairdressers uh, um, and um, sort of like the Paul Mitchell of their time or whatever. And so I think there was a fascination with the location, the bizarre nature of the perps, the publicity of the trial, yeah, and the geographic setting. I think it, it it grabs people's imagination even more than, I don't know, I'm trying to think of some other macabre episode that wouldn't get people even that uh, as interested. <clears throat> um, and maybe it was one of the first trials that were just really, really, really deeply covered, like gavel to gavel. Well, you know, it was, it, it, unlike something like O.J., I mean, I, I don't know that, that it's been 25 years since O.J. I don't know if another 25 years from now if we'll still be talking about O.J., but the the, the Manson murders, they uh, people credit the Manson murders with the, the ending the 60s, with uh, ending that whole movement. Um, and, well, and it's, it it's, okay, it's interesting because – it was this, I call it the summer of love and it was hippies or whatever. And it was like, okay, we got anti-war, but it was almost getting kind of anti-American, almost violent anti-war. So that, and, and so, so just like some of those most violent anti-war demonstrations kind of discredited the anti-war movement to a certain extent because they, they exposed some of the hypocrisy there. And that's maybe my view. <clears throat> and just like, um, the Charles Manson murder trial and the whole thing, people were thinking like, well, maybe more of us should try drugs. Maybe we should tune in, uh, turn on and drop out. And maybe it's not all so bad or whatever. And, and, and it, it absolutely tarnished the, I would say always controversial or whatever, but it, it tarnished the hippie movement as, well, this isn't necessarily love. This is, and free sex isn't just, you know, or, or orgies and, and love, it's, it could be dark and, and violent and, and whatever. So yeah, it, it, it did kind of tarnish or turn uh, the summer of love. Have you ever done an interview on this before? Uh, so I got contacted by uh, E! Entertainment, uh, Real Hollywood Stories. You're probably familiar with that. They did a, a documentary on this. And they, they wanted to interview me, but they had some criteria. <clears throat> One of them was they didn't want to 
come to my home or or or, or whatever and interview me. They, they they had to do it up in Los Angeles, but they wanted to interview me in a work environment, like me wearing a how I go to work every day was a suit and tie and a pocket square and cufflinks and you know this kind of real estate executive or whatever. Um, so I said, well, we could set it up in our Los Angeles, our downtown Los Angeles offices. They're really, you know, whatever. And I think I had to change dates on them once and they had to change dates on me once or whatever. And then they had a deadline looming or whatever. And we just, I, I think they did some chatting on the phone. I don't, I, I'm pretty sure it was not recorded and it wasn't an official interview. They just, they, they wanted to hear a little bit of the story and they said, okay, great. Let's get you in front of the camera because theirs is completely visual. And the dates just never worked out and they approached their deadline and, you know, it wasn't a priority for me. And so it, it never happened. And uh, I'm trying to think if over the years, anybody else has, oh, I'm going to do a story or an article or um, this is a hobby of mine. I want to interview you. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I think the E, the E entertainment one was the, the one that would have happened and, but didn't. Oh, I'll share, I'll share one other little snippet. Um, and, and I've been meaning to go back and find out if this is really true. I, I don't know, back in the early, early mid-70s or whatever, I was up at UC Davis, in undergraduate and graduate school, after I transferred from UCLA. And I read some books that were written about, that, uh, about this episode, and probably a few years later, so it was, it was after the trial, and all, whatever information was going to come out had come out. And they said, you know, there's the, what was it, the five victims, six, I guess, if you include the unborn baby, um, right. at the, at the Tate the Tate residence, um, and then the LaBiancas, but and then Shorty Shea, and Gary Hinman. And they said, but there was a number of unsolved murders that occurred at that time, and not all of them were even fully investigated or fully prosecuted, and that that some experts think were possibly or probably also done by the family. Right. And one of them was, they said a young woman named Marina Habe, H-A-B-E. I'm pretty sure that's the name. I remember when I took summer school at, at UD High one summer, I had to take biology and my microscope mate, my table mate, we shared the microscope and so we sat next to each other, I guess five days a week for six weeks during the summer. Beautiful young woman, I mean beautiful. And she had this cute little sports car, it was like a little MG, MG Midget or MGB Roadster. And they found her murdered off Mulholland right around the same time. Mm. And I was meant to go back and look that up, was that true or whatever? But um, yeah, so that was just another place where that touched my life. And, and I don't hear a lot about her. I don't hear a lot about, well, these are the other 18 murders and they think six almost certainly and six possibly or likely and six maybes or whatever. But just the circumstances uh, of this is they think that she may have picked up a hitchhiker that was a member of the family. And, they, it, and, and I'm, I'm trying to remember all the facts that were spelled out in this book about why they were this author was certain that that was committed by a member of the Manson family. You know, and, and there's, there's a, uh, there was a girl around the same time as those murders that was also found in Mulholland, whose name is, I think, Reeve Jervitson. 
and she was she was stabbed something like 80 times in the neck area and they think it was the family and then there's no telling how many people might be buried out there in the desert that i think it's owned by the park service or run by the park service and they there's a lot of red tape to allow digging of any depth in that area so they haven't even did they ever find the body of, of did they ever find the body of the defense attorney Hughes? They did. They found him uh, not long after uh, he was reported missing, maybe a, a few weeks or a couple of months or something. And, and, and do they think he was murdered? And, and I, I would think the family would be a prime suspect there just because who else yes. had a motive? Yes. It, it looked like he took a fall on the rocks as he was fishing, but they, but it is fishing. Well, well, especially and, 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 because, maybe, and maybe that's exactly what happened. I don't I don't. Well, well uh, Manson made a threat to him in court that uh, that he never wanted to see him in that courtroom again, and he he was never seen again in that courtroom because he disappeared the following mm. week. So it mm. stands to reason that you know it's just oh. what a what an extraordinary strange time phenomenon that that was. On the next episode of August sixty nine. I had heard about a group of hippies being arrested for some murders, and that's about all I knew. William McBride had just returned home from Vietnam when he was selected to serve during the Tate-LaBianca murder trial. At 24 years of age, he was the youngest member of the jury. Mr. McBride explains the dynamics between the 12 jurors during the unprecedented period of sequestration. After a certain period of time, we sort of got used to the uh, surroundings in the courtroom and just were able to pay attention to what was happening. The most memorable incidents inside the courtroom. One of the most dramatic was a day that Charles Manson tried to kill the judge in the open court. And his thoughts on the possibility that one of the killers might one day go free. I thought that she should be probably released at this point. Tune in to the next episode of our August 69 series. Visit moviegeeksunited.net for more details.